Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. On this Tuesday, we speak with a BC scientist who wants you to send him your dead mosquitoes. It's all part of a citizen science project called Ow! What Bit Me? I'll tell you more. What was the impact on the ecosystem of last summer's heat dome that hit BC and Alberta? Well, researchers are still working to figure that out, but they are starting to get a clearer idea of what kind of damage that record-shattering heat did and what might need to be done to mitigate risks in the future. We find out more about new research that shows Canada did a better job than many similar countries over the first two years in battling the COVID-19 pandemic. That success certainly saved lives, but there were also lessons to be learned, and we'll talk about those. But first, BC Premier John Horgan announces he'll be stepping down as soon as the BC NDP name a new leader in the fall. We look at why his health played a pivotal role in that decision, and why he'll be so tough for his party to replace. Well, for Pierre Trudeau, it was a walk in the snow, most famously back in 1984. For John Horgan, the Premier of BC, when asked, he says it was a walk on the beach that led to his decision to step down. He announced today that he will be resigning as Premier of British Columbia and leader of the BC NDP when they choose a new leader. That will be coming up in the fall. He made the announcement today following a long stretch of speculation about his future. It was a decision driven mainly by health considerations, he said. Uh, The 62-year-old announced last November that he had been diagnosed with throat cancer. He says his health is good now. He is cancer-free, but his energy flags at time. He underwent 35 radiation treatments. Horgan says he's really not able to make another six-year commitment to the job. I'm not able to make another six-year commitment to this job. And as a result, I've asked Darren Schumahetza, the president of the BC NDP, uh, to work with our governing body, the provincial council and the executive, to select a date in, uh, in the fall for a leadership convention. This has been uh, the thrill of my life to be the Premier of British Columbia, and I will be the Premier of British Columbia tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that. But not this fall. At nearly five years, he is the longest-serving provincial premier in the country right now, and one of the oldest at almost 63. While perhaps not unexpected, it is a seismic shift, not only for BC provincial politics, but for the NDP provincial government, currently the only one in power in this country. Horgan's ability to bring various factions of his party together and stay focused, avoid some of that famous infighting of the past, will be hard to replicate and even harder to replace. Well, joining me now is someone who's likely forgotten more about BC politics than most will ever know. Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief Keith Baldry joins us now. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Great to be here, Ben. So this was not a huge surprise, but uh, the impacts of it will be very big for the BC NDP and for BC politics in general, I would imagine. Yeah, it wasn't a surprise in that I think the consensus was growing that it was he was unlikely to seek re-election in 2024 because of his cancer situation. But I think a lot of people thought he'd hang on for another year um, before pulling the plug. But you're right, this is a, a ground-changing and game-changing move here. John Horgan, clearly the chief asset of the BC NDP government, uh, he's popular. He's more popular now than he was when he was first elected in 2017. And his, his popularity transcends party lines. Uh, you know, people who voted Liberal or, or Conservative Green uh, clearly support him as well. So the challenge for the NDP now is uh, can they continue on that same lofty course that they've been leading the polls for some time, an easy election win in 2020, and will the person who replaces him mirror John Horgan's, not only his policies, but his style? 
one of the Horgan's strengths, I think, was to take a big step back from, from uh, as being premier, not running the show all the time, not sticking his nose in everybody's file, not being on TV every single night, unlike some premiers. Uh, it was never all about him. It was the most decentralized premier's office I've seen in all my years covering here, um, you know, just by by definition, power is is usually centered in the corner office, whether it's the prime minister or the premier. And that wasn't so much the case with John Horgan. He really let others sort of uh, breathe and, and be the face of the government and not just him. But it's a, it's a potential big blow to the NDP because, again, he's the number one asset for them. Yeah, and, and and in many ways, uh, watching him now, I mean, he only became more, and that's this is rare for a politician to become more popular as you lead. But in, in his case, that's exactly what happened. What do you think the secret was? You mentioned the decentralization. Also, there was just something about the way he is uh, that seemed to yep. be able to bridge some of the issues that the NDP had had in the past. Yeah, it's interesting. When he was in opposition, he was opposition leader, and his nickname was Angry John. Uh, he was clearly frustrated. Uh, he hated being opposition leader. He was sort of forced onto him because no one else wanted to do it. Uh, and he was the best they had. But he was really uh, angry, lashing out at people. Then comes the 2017 election, and it was just this transformation where he became turned from Angry John to the Happy Warrior. And he really took, uh, dove both feet or head first into the premier's job. And I've, I've remarked before, I've covered 10 premiers. I've never seen someone enjoy being premier as much as John Horgan did. He reveled in the public interaction in representing the government, actually doing things rather than criticizing opposition, but actually doing public policy that he'd been wanting to do for a long time. And as time went on, he just grew in the job. His, his confidence grew. His charisma started to emerge. His nickname was Premier Dad. He was sort of always out there giving advice to people, this sort of thing. And I think that really grew on people. It was a, it was a unique approach for a politician to sort of shed the ego while at the same time trying to become the everyman to everyone. He was very, he had the common touch and he continues to have the common touch. Uh, and again, that's, that served him well as premier. I was going to say for a lot of, um, parties across the country looking how to do politics differently. You didn't have to agree with John Horgan's policies. You didn't have to vote for his party. As you mentioned earlier, there was just, um, there's always been a way about him that people seem to enjoy. And it could be a lesson to lots of other leaders out there looking. I mean, we have a leadership race going on in a very similar one going on in Alberta. There's a federal conservative leadership race going on. There's a lot of leadership positions out there. And some might look to John Horgan to figure out what, it, what some of that that magic formula might be. Oh, I think that's a very good point. I think politicians would be well served uh, to look at the royal jelly that uh, John Horgan has possessed for all the number of years in power, five years in power, that he didn't have when he was in opposition. And again, it wasn't, it was, wasn't taking rigid positions and refusing to admit that maybe you're wrong. Uh, it wasn't being uh, ideological. It was being sort of common sense and pragmatic and willing to um, say no to even people who you, you maybe count on as your, as your supporters, trying to strike that, that balance, that middle ground. And as a result, he kept his party together and is very unified. And that's another challenge to whoever succeed. Um, the NDP, like any other party, is basically a coalition of interests. Can whoever succeed, Horgan, continue to ensure that a large chunk of the environmental movement is still within the NDP, along with organized labor and with the business community? It's a challenge to keep everyone together. And Horgan was able to pull that off for five years, largely through his own personal death style and his personal likability. Um, he's a likable guy, uh, certainly when he was premier. When he was opposition leader, when he was frustrated, not so much. But uh, as premier, he's, um, it's really turned over a new leaf. 
Yeah, I remember that was supposed to be his Achilles heel was his short fuse, his yeah. bad temper, as you mentioned, Angry John, and he certainly turned into sort of barbecue dad. That was kind of his <laughs> uh, his persona. What happens now? Because obviously when a party is plunged into a leadership race, I mean, they try their best to stay united, put, to put on a united front. But uh, a lot of the battles start pretty fast when, when, the, when the job is suddenly open for the taking. It does, although we are headed into the summer months. Uh, we're coming out of a pandemic where people haven't really done anything for a long time. I think I think a lot of stuff might be put on hold because I think a lot of people who normally get really active in leadership races may want to go traveling this summer, may want to do something other than, you know, sitting in their in their home. I think this is going to begin in earnest after Labor Day. Uh, and it'll begin in, in earnest when the party sets a date because then you've got the clock is ticking. You can see how much work needs to be done. It's all about signing party memberships up. That's tougher to do in the summer, I think, when people may be away than in the in the fall in the winter. I expect the vote to come probably sometime late October, early November. And that gives candidates the time, you know, two or three months to organize when the kids go back to school and people get back to normal activities. So, and Horgan's going to remain premier until then. So not a lot's going to change overnight. I think when we get into the fall, we're going to see, um, we're going to see more action and activity when it comes to um, the race and the people actually entering it. Yeah. Any, uh, for listeners out there, any early favorites uh, on your list? Well, it's good. again, it's all about sign-ups, and I'm not sure. I haven't talked to any of these guys about specifically about running, but the Attorney General, David Eby, certainly has had leadership aspirations in the past. He's got a young family, though, so who knows whether that changes everything. Uh, Ravi Kalon, who's this up-and-coming star in uh, the, the party, former party worker, now the jobs minister, um, is, has to be considered. Uh, we've got a suburban mayor in Metro Vancouver, Brad West in Port Coquitlam, who's sort of made a name for himself at the municipal level, and might make the jump into into party politics. Uh, Josie Osborne, who's a rookie MLA, but she had been the mayor of Tofino on the west coast of Vancouver Island. She's now a cabinet minister with an environmental portfolio. I've heard her name kicked around quite a bit by people in caucus and the bureaucracy who are quite impressed by her. And Bowen Ma, who's a young up-and-coming MLA on the north shore of Vancouver, uh, seems to be fairly ambitious. So those are the the five names I showed on Global uh, tonight. I'm sure there'll be others out there. I don't expect to be a huge crowded field, but five or six candidates seems about right. And it's going to be interesting. The NDP is very committed to something that really helped get them elected, not only in 2017, but particularly in 2020. And that was really... um, coming up with a, a, a caucus of, and a field of candidates and members who really reflect the diversity of the community. And that means a, a gender equity mix, more um, ethnic diversity communities represented as well. And I think that's going to be reflected in the leadership race as well. Yeah, we certainly heard John Horgan today talk about passing the baton to a new generation, at least and a lot of the people that you've mentioned are uh, all, all, all in their 40s. Uh, I believe most yep. of the candidates you mentioned are in their 40s. Coming up, listen, we're going we're to take a quick break, come back, talk a bit about something else that happened today. In fact, John Horgan referenced it right at the beginning of his press conference before he announced that he was leaving. And that was an incident uh, in Victoria, outside of Victoria, uh, that happened today. We'll get to that after this. Multiple officers responded to the scene and encountered the armed suspects who fired at police. Two suspects who were shot by police died at the scene. Six GVERT officers suffered gunshot wounds and were transported to hospital. That is Saanich Police Chief Dean Duthie. Saanich is part of Greater Victoria. 
Victoria often seen, known as being a quiet place, anything but today in Saanich, where two suspects were killed, bank robbery suspects. Six, six members of the Greater Victoria Emergency Response Team are in hospital following an exchange of gunfire at that Bank of Montreal branch in Saanich today. Here's eyewitness video of the scene. You can hear just how chaotic it was. Oh, my God. Oh, oh my God. We are witnessing a Bankroll. Well, let me bring back in Global's BC Legislative Bureau, Legislative Bureau Chief Keith Baldry. Uh, as a longtime Victoria resident, uh, that's just the kind of thing you never see here. You uh, never hear here. Absolutely shocking that that would take place in quiet Victoria. Now, we have seen a rise in some street crime, but in the downtown core primarily, this is just a little outside downtown. Uh, and you don't see bank robberies uh, anymore these days, but um, no, this is absolutely shocking. And it sort of had a special role at the legislature because the Sandwich and Victoria police officers basically, uh, the security officers at the BC legislature, by and large, reti- retired or former uh, police officers in Sandwich and Victoria. And today I spent much of the day covering John Horgan's, you know, um, news conference, which was big in, in itself, and then at the same time running around talking to sec, uh, sec, security officers of the ledge, and they're talking to me, everybody frantic to know what's going on with them. Everybody at the ledge, many people at the ledge, knew the six officers who were shot. In fact, that emergency response team trains right outside my door at the B.C. legislature. I'm in the armory building, and they use the floor behind me um, on my level. They have to walk through my door and fully armed as they do training exercises. So, um, yeah, this is uh, they had a big presence at the B.C. legislature. So you could argue at the legislature today, the Horgan announcement was huge, but that shooting of six police officers was, for many people, a much bigger story at the legislature. Mm-hmm. Very little in the way of detail, yet we know that three of the officers were Vic PD, Victoria Police, three of them Saanich Police, that Greater Victoria Emergency Response Unit is a combined unit. Yep. Uh, we also, in this province, of course, when anything like that happens, the IIO, the uh, investigative, uh, the police that investigate police uh, come in, or at least investigate police actions will come in and have a look. Uh, but yeah, lots of questions still, I guess, lots of questions about what could have happened. And uh, luckily, we know that as far as we can tell, no one else was hurt, no bystanders, no bank customers, no, no bank staff. No, no other persons were hurt initially. I mean, it was chaos at the beginning. There were all sorts of reports. There were multi uh, number of casualties that went beyond police. That wasn't the case. Six officers were shot. At least one of them, though, is in critical condition and undergoing surgery. So that's a very a source of concern. Um, and when, again, that's that's a touch and go situation. So we'll get an update on that tomorrow. Let's hope the officer pulls through. But I, Ben, I don't know about you. I cannot remember an incident in Canada where six police officers were shot. Um, hopefully there are no fatalities here, but just six people being shot is extraordinary. That just, it just does not happen. No, and this happened, I mean, Tuesday at 11 a.m. This was a broad daylight affair. So, you know, obviously... And apparently, um, again, we're still trying to put the pieces together here, very heavily armed individuals. These weren't uh, handguns. These were assault weapons. Um, and also, uh, I'm not sure what the status is. They, there was, we signed up for our newscast tonight. The bomb disposal unit was on its way out there because there was a, a suspicion that there was a bomb or some sort of explosive device in one of the bad guy's vehicles. I'm not sure how that was resolved.
Yeah, I think we're going to find out more. Part of that area is still shut down. I know that the Mm -hmm. search for a third suspect was called off, as always in this case. Uh, That was actually ended, I believe, just uh, just a little bit earlier. I don't think there was a third suspect. That often happens in these cases. Yeah. Uh, Just just from a standpoint, I I know that the uh, public safety minister was out with some with some statements tonight regarding uh, the officers. Of course, uh, you know thoughts with them and their families tonight, and also just from a procedural perspective, what happens generally now when these sorts of incidents take place? I know this is unprecedented, but we've seen other incidents involving involving police in, before well you mentioned the yellow the independent office they'll come in now it was involved a police shooting i mean they did shoot the two bad guys here so there's going to be an external independent investigation i expect another also potentially another police force will be in, involved here for further uh investigations um but again this is an extraordinary and unprecedented situation so there'll be a number of investigations not the least of which will be about the bank robbery itself but also focusing on police conduct and, um, and again, live and learn. What did they learn from this incident that can be avoided in the, in the future? A similar incident hopefully would not see a repeat of six officers being shot. No, and it certainly calls into questions. That, again, you mentioned uh, this is just not the kind of gun crime we see often in this in this in any part of the country, let alone you know, Vancouver Island. It brought back memories, and this was a long time ago. I remember Stephen Reed was an author and a former leader of what was called the Stopwatch Gang, which got some notoriety for its bank robbers, bank robberies using a stopwatch and getting away with it. He was in prison. He got out. Uh, he wrote a, bo- a book about his imprisonment, and then one day the BC Legislature suddenly heard just all these police sirens. You don't hear police sirens that much. You hear ambulances, but not police sirens. Racing around the legislature, a car came flying by my window here in the back, shooting out windows with a shotgun, uh, followed by police who, they were these were bank robbers, holed up in a home in nearby James Bay, just the neighborhood we're in here, for the rest of the day. So that was the last sort of um, notable incident of this. Now, nobody was killed then, thank goodness, uh, or even, I think there was one person shot, but this was, this brought memories of that particular uh, high-speed police chase in a bank robbery because again you don't see these things happen in victoria it's more crimes that are more uh, we've had some pretty high profile crimes here involving young people but bank robberies and police shootouts that just doesn't happen here no keith thanks so much for your time tonight Anytime. and of course our, our, our best to the officers at the ledge too uh thank you about their friends global bc's legislature bureau chief uh, keith baldry there talking about uh, john horgan's resignation today and this shootout uh this incident at a bank outside of victoria involving police uh six people injured two gunmen uh, alleged bank robbers killed uh at least a few police officers still in hospital tonight in serious condition our thoughts of course are with them and their families after they've run and clearly ran into the line of fire uh to try to protect people in that area <laughs> Every once in a while you see something, you see a story somewhere and you think, that's a great story. I thought this was a great story. My next guest, only if you live in BC and Yukon, (laughs) don't send them in from everywhere. My next guest wants you to send him your dead mosquitoes. Put them in an envelope and send them his way. It's part of a citizen science project called Ow What Bit Me. And it is the work of Dr. Dan Peach. He's an entomologist at the University of British Columbia. And he's trying to figure out which species of mosquitoes remain in BC and the Yukon and which ones are making their way here as a result of climate change. Um, It's a fascinating project. I wanted to know more about it. So joining us now is Dan Peach. Thank you for your time tonight. Hey, thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. So tell me about your work. What is it that you, what is it that you do when it comes to mosquitoes, uh, an insect that most of us try to avoid? 
Sure. Um, so what what uh, the project I'm, I'm, I'm launching this summer is, is uh, it's called Ow, What Just Bit Me? And we're hoping that people in uh, British Columbia and the Yukon will be interested in sending us their squished mosquitoes. So if a uh, mosquito bites you and you squish it and you're interested in um, um, participating in our project, we're just asking that you fold it up in a piece of paper, um, write where uh, you, you encountered it and um, when. Um, as for where, just, you know, an address or a cross street or latitude and longitude from Google Maps. And then um, throw it in the mail to us, uh, to the Ben Matthews Lab at UBC Zoology, address 4200-6270, University Boulevard, Vancouver, BC, postal code V6T1Z4. And then when we receive these, um, what we're going to do is grind them up and extract some genetic material from them, which will then be compared to a, a database of, of genetic material from known species. Um, and then we can identify what species it is. And then we'll use this data point of this species was in this place on this date to create uh, distribution maps of what species are where in, in uh, British Columbia and the Yukon. Um, and then also to use uh, various habitat models and different climate change scenarios to project into the coming decades to see sort of how these distributions might might uh, shift as our climate changes. Oh, what just bit me is a, is a great name for a project. I will share that address with uh, with listeners at the end of the interview as well, just so you don't, if you, in case you missed it, I'll make sure you get that again. So what ultimately are you trying, you mentioned it briefly, but uh, mosquitoes, I guess, you know, they don't, their populations don't stay stable, stable, they move around. What, uh, what would you be looking for? What is your hypothesis here? Absolutely. So um, in British Columbia, we have more than 50 uh, species uh, that are known to be here. And in the Yukon, it's, it's just more than 30. Um, but uh, there, there are species that exist, for instance, in Alaska and Washington State that we haven't confirmed in, in BC and the Yukon. And presumably they, they exist in between uh, those two states. So uh, one hypothesis is that we think there might be species that we aren't aware of. Um, in, in, in BC and the Yukon. And the other is that uh, some of the species that we do know are here, and in particular, um, you know, some vector species, we think that they might, their distributions might change uh, in the future, and that they also might exist in places um, currently uh, where, where they're not known to. And so um, we're just, we're trying to sort of fill in those gaps based on our current knowledge, and then see where things might go in the future. Sort of a, a forewarned is forearmed, Thing, especially when it comes to some of the, the vector species, um, because, you know, to, to, to spread a pathogen, uh, you'll need the vector mosquito there as well. So things like, for instance, West Nile um, can only spread if the right mosquito species are present. And so we want to know where those, those species are and where they will end up, you know, 10, 20, 30 years down the road. And I guess that has a lot to do with just uh, temperatures changing, right? Mosquitoes, uh, I gather, don't like it to be too chilly. Uh, so they do. They, I, I could be wrong on that, actually. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, so, 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 I mean, are you are you seeing already seeing shifts of, of where they are, and, and is that what you expect to find out uh, once uh, the good folks of BC and Yukon start sending you their uh, their their skeeters in the mail? Sure. Um, so yeah, we do expect to see some 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 shifts and some some new um, distributions pop up. Currently, for instance, just a couple of years ago, uh, there was a, a a mosquito we, uh, we found in uh, around Prince George that wasn't known to go that far north. Um, there's a uh, uh, there have been oh a few species now that have turned up in in the Yukon that weren't no, known to go that far north, um, and there have been uh, a few species that have turned up in different parts of British Columbia when they weren't known to previously exist there. So, for example, there are um, some species that uh, oh probably. Uh, 10 or 15 years ago now have been found on on the island that weren't known to be there or just a couple of years ago that were found on Haida Gwaii 
that weren't previously known to be there. And those are, are probably native species that were there all along, but that's sort of one element of the, the, the knowledge gaps that we're trying to fill in, is where are native species um, that have been places that are overlooked, and then where are things spreading to you did mention this uh, earlier, but uh, but mosquitoes, of course, you're not doing this for benign reasons. Mosquitoes can pose a threat. Absolutely, yep, yep. Um, we're very lucky in in Canada, and that uh, you know it's it's fairly cold here compared to to many other parts of the world. But um, mosquitoes are are considered um, the world's deadliest animal, primarily from the pathogens that they spread, which tends to happen, you know, primarily in, in, in tropical um, areas. Um, but uh, it, they they certainly can be very bad news. So, for instance, when you look at uh, all of human history, it's thought that uh, mosquitoes might have killed approximately half of all people that have ever existed. Um, malaria is, is the, the big one there, but there are many other pathogens involved. Now, luckily here in, in, in BC and the Yukon, like I said, it's it's fairly cold. We have summers and it can get quite warm, but um, it's it's for, for fairly short periods of time compared to other uh, parts of the world where it's warm for several months on end. Um, so we don't tend to have uh, as, as many or as bad of pathogens as in other places. But um, you know that that may change as as uh, you know climate shifts in the future, and um, new pathogens might show up that don't don't exist here. Like for instance, West Nile wasn't uh, wasn't around um, a few decades ago, and it's sort of a fairly new arrival. And so we might have other things that show up. Um, and if that's the case, it would be good to know you know where some of the mosquitoes that, that vector these that could vector any new pathogens, uh, where where some of these mosquitoes might exist, um, just to sort of help prepare us. I mean, I guess we are seeing, are you seeing that sort of shift northward elsewhere? I'm thinking specifically of the U.S., but also in parts of Europe. Are we seeing a shift northward of some of these things that we always associated with more as sort of tropical things? Um, yeah, and even even things that are, are sort of subtropical are, are kind of moving moving north in some areas as well. It's sort of, um, uh, you know, information can be kind of hit or miss, uh, but but um, there are records certainly turning up far much farther north than they were, uh, some of these species were previously thought to, to be able to go. Um, for instance, there are some, some species that have turned up lately in southern Ontario. Uh, Aedes albopictus is, is one of them, the, the Asian tiger mosquito that wasn't really thought to be able to go that far north, but uh, just in the last few years, it's been confirmed to have uh, entered and, and established in southern Ontario. And so it's sort of, uh, we get these yellow warning lights flashing to sort of keep our eyes open for this kind of thing. What sparked your interest in mosquitoes, uh, Dan? How did you come? Because most of us, as it's often said, most of us uh, don't have very pleasant memories of time we, times we spent in mosquito-laden areas. I did as a kid, obviously, growing up in Quebec. Um, but what, what sparked your interest in, in, in the mosquito? Absolutely. So uh, I was given the option of, of studying them uh, when I started grad school, and I, I, I quite quickly... Um, became interested in what I call the, the secret life of mosquitoes. And that's everything that mosquitoes do that, that doesn't directly involve us. So um, there are more than 3,500 mosquito species around the world. And in all of those species, um, well, first I should say not all of them will take blood. And in the ones that do, it's only ever the females that do. And they're just doing that to uh, get nutrition to develop their eggs. And so the, the fundamental food of adult mosquitoes is, is floral nectar. And so, um, in, in you know, researching uh, mosquito interactions with flowers and how they, they they play a role as pollinators and the other things that they do in the environment, um, I, I quickly became quite fascinated with. Um, but then it all sort of came full circle because uh, learning about the ecology of these animals, you you can improve uh, uh, mosquito control methods or create new ones as you learn more and more about their ecology. So. Um, everything from you know, yeah their 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 association with flowers to we've we've uh, learned that you know UV uh, uh, the UV spectrum might be more important to mosquito vision than we 
we previously uh, believed, um, learning uh, about new things that can be used as mosquito baits or even just uh, uh, things to keep in mind when you're controlling mosquitoes. Like, for instance, maybe trying to, to balance uh, mosquito control or time it in such a way to minimize any impact on, on pollination or to target only the species which are causing um, an issue and to leave this, the species that don't don't bite. Um, that sort of thing or, or, or sort of bringing it all for, full circle to tie the uh, ecology and the secret life back in with, with how they impact uh, humans. I never thought of a secret life of mosquitoes. I guess you're right. Any animal that t- that bites us, we think of it as being a bit of a monoculture, right? a bit mono, a bit a bit myopic. It only does the one thing because it impacts us. Uh, but a very interesting. So you spent a lot of time. I, I, I gather. I mean, I guess you spent a lot of time among mosquitoes. How, how do you uh, how do you prevent yourself from getting bit, Dan? May I ask? <laughs> Uh, absolutely. Well, I, I take the opposite approach. When I'm out among mosquitoes, I'm trying to get them to uh, to come and bite me usually because it, <laughs> it makes it easier to catch them. That's uh, right. one of the benefits of working with, with mosquitoes as a research organism is for most people, they have to go out and really track down the uh, the animal that they're working with. But mine come to me, which in some ways makes my life easier. But it also means that I get into a lot of, uh, uh, you know, just really... Um, a really intense muskeg without wearing a mosquito repellent. And I just have to kind of uh, uh, live, live with it and, uh, uh, you know, uh, take, take the bites as they come, but uh, be able to catch mosquitoes and see what's there and uh, uh, do, do my research. So it's a, uh, <laughs> it's sort of an interesting, uh, interesting uh, approach that I'm, I'm sure many other people want nothing to do with. No doubt. Although this time around, if people do get bit, once again, to, to go back to the beginning, you are asking uh, people in BC and Yukon specifically, if you're in other parts of the country, maybe not. Uh, I think there was some, perhaps some exceptions there you mentioned earlier, but, uh, but if you're in Yukon and BC and you get bitten by a mosquito, uh, what will you do with them again? You, you're going, you're you're going to figure out where uh, they are. Is that it? Yeah, yeah. So if you if you're interested, uh, uh, squish them, um, throw them in a you know fold them up in a piece of paper, throw them in an envelope. Um, make sure you have the uh, the address they were collected at, or a cross street, or latitude and longitude from from Google Maps, um, and put uh, put the, the the date on there. You know, if you're interested in hearing back from us as to what species it was, throw your email in there too, and then right. uh, please mail it to us um, at the Ben know. Matthews Lab at UBC Zoology. Address 4200-6270, University Boulevard, Vancouver, BC, postal code V6T1Z4. And when, when might we see the results of your uh, of your citizen-led research here? What 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 might that look like? And when might we see it? So it'll it'll take a while. You know, it, it sort of depends how many specimens we get. <laughs> um, it'll, if, if there are a lot, it'll it'll take a while to process them. But I would anticipate sometime in, in in the new year for us to to work our way through everything and then start making some maps out of it. Dan Peach, fascinating. Uh, Ow, what just bit me is a fascinating name for any project. Um, thanks for filling us in, and uh, I look forward to hearing again, hearing about the progress of your uh, of your mosquito research. Thanks so much for your time. Hey, thanks. It's my pleasure. For listeners in BC and parts of Alberta, you'll remember last year's heat dome. It's hard to forget. I was actually coming back. I'd taken the train to Jasper. I was only able to stay overnight. I had to take the train back because I had to work. Um, But it was on my bucket list. It's something I'd always wanted to do was take the train through the Rockies. So I did it. I did the whole thing in 48 hours. I don't recommend doing that. But it was still great. It's, It's stunning. But when we arrived back in Kamloops, We got off the train and man, it was hot. You could tell something strange was happening. It was hotter and people have been talking about it getting up to 40 degrees, but I don't think anyone really understood what that meant. And then I went to Seashelt to see a friend of my mom's and my mom. 
And it was like watching the landscape bake. That's how hot it was. It was like watching the landscape change in front of your eyes. You know, BC is a pretty temperate place. 40 degrees it was higher. Places like Lytton, it got up to 47 or so. Well, year after the heat dome that killed billions of plants and animals in this province, scientists are still working to understand how it affected the ecosystem in BC. Uh, Rachel White has been the lead author of a report into the widespread ecological impacts, and she says the lack of synthesized data has been a major barrier for them so far. Now, some effects were immediate and obvious, but several years of data will be needed to get a full picture. It's a fascinating subject because we don't know much, but we're starting to figure out just what happened during the heat dome, at least a little bit, but a lot more work has to be done. Well, joining me now is lead author of that report, Rachel White. She's an assistant professor of atmospheric sciences at the University of British Columbia. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Oh, thanks for having me, Ben. Just thinking back a year ago um, as a scientist, because I've spoken to other people who work in different uh, in different branches about just how um, astounding an event it was and just how quickly people start to think, I wonder what the impact of this is going to be. Uh, how much of an outlier was the heat dome when it comes to what you look at? Yeah, this was incredibly unprecedented for um, our region and even sort of worldwide. There's been a number of studies coming out showing that this was one of the most extreme events that have happened sort of anywhere on Earth um, since we've sort of really been collecting good temperature records. So, yeah, this was this was very extreme. So sort of we, we looked at the um, temperature records broken and so many places as such a broad spatial footprint of um, places that broke previous maximum records by four degrees Celsius, by five degrees Celsius, by more than that. It, yeah, it, this was quite unprecedented. How much does that throw off? And this might sound like a bit of a, a bit of a rhetorical question, but how much does that throw off the ecosystem when there's that much of a temperature change? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think um, some of a lot of those um, answers we're still working on. We're still trying to understand what the long-term impacts of this are, and so there are some parts of the ecosystems that we were, um, as scientists, um, able to get out and sort of look at the impacts quite quickly. Um, but other other parts of the ecosystem might take years to recover, and so really trying to understand all of those impacts is actually going to take us a long time. We're, we're a year we're a year out from the heat wave, and there's still a lot of unanswered questions about exactly what um, the impacts were across um, all of these different all these different regions, all these different ecosystems, and the different parts of BC and Alberta, and um, even Washington and Oregon in the US. What have you learned so far, Rachel? Yeah, so great question. Um, and so in terms of the ecosystem, um, scientists have been looking um, particularly at marine life. Um, and so this had such a huge devastating impact on um, marine life, particularly life sort of that lives on the um, intertidal shores. And so the region between sort of high and low tide. And there were a number of uh, things that contributed to that. And some of that was that um, the heat wave occurred very close to the summer solstice. So we had very high um, solar insulation. And so with this heat wave, we saw very clear skies. Um, and so a lot of um, the, the sun's rays hitting the surface. It also unfortunately coincided with um, very low early afternoon low tides. 
Um, and so a lot of um, a lot of this intertidal uh, shore was exposed to this solar radiation. Um, and so scientists out there were sort of looking at the temperatures of the surface and some regions reached sort of more than 52 Celsius, um, or sort of the rock surfaces and the mussels and all of the life that um, lives there. And so they, they just sort of all of these creatures, um, just most a lot of them couldn't survive those extreme temperatures and just sort of baked on the on the shores, unfortunately. Is that is that reversible? Uh, damn, I mean, I, I imagine it probably is, but it must have some sort of impact. I know we might not know yet, but it must have some sort of impact on on uh, on the ecosystem period for, for, for those creatures. Yeah, that's a really great question. And so the scientists are out there, um, back out there this year, and sort of what we'll have to keep looking um, at these at these ecosystems and seeing sort of over a period of the next sort of year or the next two, five, ten years, how quickly these ecosystems respond um, and recover because because this was so unprecedented. We don't really have a lot of data to really understand can they recover from that severe. Um, heat and how quickly can they recover from that? And so sort of previous heat waves and the data we have from that don't necessarily help us that much understanding what the response is going to be this time to something that, that was that extreme. Moving away from the ocean, uh, were there other areas that you saw that you also have a better understanding so far of what the impact was? Yeah, so we've been doing some sort of analysis. Um, there's analysis on sort of obviously one of the things that was most reported was the impact on humans um, and mortality across the different provinces. Um, and so the so best estimates at this point um, was at least 900 attributable deaths um, across the um, across Canada and the US. Um, and so in BC alone, um, the BC coroner's um, service have, I think we've got 526 um, deaths directly attributed to that extreme heat just during that one week. Um, and there's still work going on understanding um, whether there was um, excess deaths reported for the rest of July as well and trying to understand how many of those were associated with um, the heat wave and so exacerbated um, conditions of particularly vulnerable people. Um, and so that's one of the most devastating um, impacts of this. But we also saw impacts um, on the wildfires. Um, and so anyone in BC will remember, you know, we the this heat wave was sort of almost the, the starting point for a devastating uh, wildfire season. Um, and so we actually see when you start off with a few wildfires and you have heat wave that just really heats up all of the vegetation, it really dries out the land. And so you have this hot, dry vegetation. You've essentially created a lot of a sort of tinder or kindling um, in the landscape. And unfortunately, one of the sort of scientifically interesting but devastating parts of this is that wildfires themselves can produce the sort of meteorology, the weather conditions to produce lightning. Um, and so that's often dry lightning. It's not part of um, a storm with a lot of rainfall. And so it doesn't come with sort of wetting the landscape. And so the more fires you have, the more lightning that is produced and so the more fires that are sparked. And so this was part of that sort of, you know, rolling stone process that was um, certainly um, sped up a lot by this heat wave last year. Um, we've looked at impacts on agricultural yields. And so at the time, there were a lot of reports from sort of farmers 
just looking at their crops in the fields and seeing the devastation on um, a lot of them. And we've done some analysis looking at crop yields from uh, last year to see, you know, whether overall yields for the whole um, year um, different from average. And again, all of these things are quite difficult to really pin down, you know, what was the effect of that, you know, that week of really extreme temperatures and what was the effect of the whole season? So obviously crops um, and vegetables and fruit are affected by a lot of things throughout the um, throughout the growing seasons. Um, but we did find that um, for 26 of the um, crops that we analyzed, and so that was field crops um, such as wheat, we've got fruit crops and vegetable crops, sort of 24 of those 26 show decreases relative to our predictions for what the yields should have been in 2021 based on average conditions. And we had sort of, there's other evidence that suggests that this heat wave did play a substantial role in that as well. It's amazing just what, I mean, any of us who were here for it, as I was, it, it, you could feel the landscape changing uh, because yes. it was so hot here. And, and just compared to how it usually is, you could watch uh, the landscape change under that heat. I'm speaking with Rachel White, an assistant professor of atmospheric sciences at the University of British Columbia. We're talking about the one-year anniversary of the heat dome that descended on British Columbia last year with record dust-breaking temperatures, and, and Alberta as well, record-breaking temperatures in many parts of the province. A very widespread, as Rachel mentioned, a very big footprint uh, the heat had on this province. And the effects of it are still still being understood or still being figured out. Uh, after this, we'll talk a bit more just about the long-term impacts, if we're going to see more of these and what impact that could have, if this is just the beginning of something we're going to, to see on a more regular basis. That's next. Our guest this half hour is Rachel White, an assistant professor of atmospheric sciences at the University of British Columbia. We're talking about the one-year anniversary of the heat dome and the ongoing work by a whole bunch of people, a whole bunch of scientists on trying to figure out what the impact was because it was widespread on just about everything that lives in this broad ecosystem that is British Columbia, Alberta, and uh, the Pacific Northwest of the U.S. Uh, well, Rachel, what are the, some of the things we have not managed to understand just yet? Uh, you did mention some of the things we have figured out, but clearly there are still a lot of questions about what the long-term impact of, uh, of one week ago this year was. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, and I think there's impacts on um, stream flow and um, particularly salmon and other fish and creatures that live in the stream and those ecosystems. One of the things that um, I found really interesting and was that whilst we were having these record-breaking temperatures, we were also getting record-breaking stream flow and flooding in many regions, um, essentially because the snowpack and the glaciers up in the mountains were melting at record rates because of this heat. And um, many, many streams, many rivers actually experienced record-breaking um, river flow um, as, as well as having these record-breaking temperatures. Um, and so the combination of those two impacts on um, the ecosystems is, I think, something that takes a while to really understand um, because we, we're not we're not out there. We're not sort of measuring um, the impacts on the ecosystems all of the time. Those are more sort of um, individual studies. And so where we have data, we can um, look at it. But we don't always have data from those particular periods to understand um yeah what what the impact was then and so we're trying to understand what the longer term impacts are and i think one of the other more interesting things is um those of us in bc will remember later that year um we had a number of uh, atmospheric river events that brought an awful lot of precipitation and flooding into the province and led to some really devastating landslides 
And there's some interesting connections between the wildfires that we saw partly in response to this heat wave and an increased risk of landslides. And so really trying to piece um, sort of work out what the, those connections were and how much that heat wave did contribute to those landslides um, later in the year, I think, is a question that we're still sort of trying to um, work out. It's very hard to quantify, um, but there's a lot of evidence that they, they certainly did contribute in terms of the impacts of the wildfires themselves. It felt like such an extreme event at the time. And we know, of course, that one of the issues with climate change is that it makes things more extreme. Is this, is this, are these sorts of heat domes something we're going to see a lot more of? And are we going to have to learn to mitigate those risks? So we're certainly going to have to learn to mitigate the risks of more extreme heat waves and more frequent heat waves. Whether we'll see something this bad again um, in the near future, um, really I mean, part of that really depends on what we as a species, as a global community do to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. And so the biggest uncertainty in how much warming we're going to experience is in how much more greenhouse gases do we continue to put into the atmosphere? And so that that's sort of the, the answer to this question um, is it, it's up to us. And so the, the, the longer answer is that it's very hard to know exactly how frequent an event this could be, because to, to understand that, we'd have to know how frequent an event it was in the past climate. And so there's a lot of researchers really trying to understand this, this question of, you know, was this an event that would happen on average once every 500 years? Was it an event that happens once every a thousand years? Was it so rare that it was an event that happens every once every 10,000 years? And, you know, we don't have that much data. We have not been um, measuring temperatures in um, sort of this precise way for 10,000 years in this. Um, so it's very hard for us to actually know where does this event fall um, in that sort of probabilities and therefore where will it fall in the future? And so we do know that climate change is making events like this more likely. Um, it's making sort of all temperatures higher. And so it's making our hottest temperatures higher as well. So, right. I hope, my hope is that we will mitigate and reduce our greenhouse gas emissions such that this type of event isn't some, sort of a, a one in five or a one in 10 year event, which some of the worst predictions are saying might be the case by the end of the 21st century. Um, I hope that's not the case. And I think partly that's um, right. Partly that's up to us to um, reduce the greenhouse gas emissions, to reduce the amount of warming we see in order to avoid this. But even even without something this bad, you know, this could have been two degrees Celsius cooler and it would still have been a very extreme event with a lot of impacts. And so we do still need to um, recognize that these types of extreme events are going to become more frequent, even if it's not quite this extreme again for, you know, hopefully 50, 60, maybe never years. Um, we will have to prepare for more heat waves, um, as will as will all other provinces and regions around the world, unfortunately. Rachel White, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Thank you. I don't need to remind you of the sacrifices that so many of you I know made 
during the early years of the pandemic, whether it was waiting in line to get a vaccine, whether it was booking your appointment to get so, making the decision to do so, whether it was obeying all the rules that came into place, whether it was you had a small business that you had to shut down or had to adapt to all these different and changing rules, it was tough. But there are a lot of studies coming out now that show that it was worth it. So for all those out there shouting the odds about how it was all so unfair and how it was all so unjust, just remember that 80% of us more got vaccinated. Most of us followed the rules. You know why? Because it mattered. Because if you trust your neighbor, if you love your neighbor, that's what you do. You protect each other. And that's how you protect each other. This wasn't about individual freedoms. This was about saving things. And of course, there were mistakes. So what we'd like to see done now is learn from those mistakes. So we don't have to go through that again, at least not the same way. So it turns out, according to a new study, that Canada handled the first two years of COVID-19 and weathered the ensuing upheaval better than several other nations with comparable healthcare systems and economic infrastructure. A team of Ontario researchers compared data from February 2020 to February 2022 in 11 countries, including us, Belgium, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, the Netherlands, Sweden, Switzerland, the UK, and the US, all countries with pretty similar economic and healthcare systems, uh, and then published that research in the Canadian Medical Association Journal yesterday. And it shows that we did really well. You know why? Restrictive and persistent public health measures, as well as a successful vaccination campaign. Well, with more on this is Dr. Fahad Razak. He is a scientific director or the scientific director of the Ontario COVID-19 Science Advisory Table and an internist and epidemiologist at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto. Thanks for your time. Yeah, great to be with you. So this is a fascinating study. What did you set out to find and, and who did you look at? So uh, clearly the pandemic has been a br brutal period for every country globally. And what we really wanted to know is whether we could compare Canada against other countries to see in this very difficult time how we did relative to others. And for us, finding a reasonable group of countries to compare against was a big challenge. And we thought, what is most important in the pandemic response? You probably want to have countries with similar political and economic systems, similar healthcare capacity. So you can't compare us against poorer countries that don't have great hospitals. And the G10 seemed like a reasonable group of countries. Um, so there's actually 11 countries in the G10, even, named, even though it's named the G10. And it includes countries like the United Kingdom, Germany, France, Italy, the US. So countries that are similar to us in many important ways. What was the result? Because it, uh, I gather from reading the reports and looking through your report that, um, that Canada fared very well in all this. We did with respect to COVID. So we looked at three, three different things. We looked at uh, the impact of the virus itself the measures we took to control it, so the, the public health measures and the restrictions, and then finally the economic uh, impact. And so starting with the COVID measures, uh, it was striking how well we did. So we had among the lowest rates of infection in the G10. If you compared us, for example, to France, which had the highest rates, uh, over the first two years, if we had the same infection rate as France, we would have had 9 million more Canadians infected. So 25% so of the population would have been additionally infected in the first two years if we followed the French course. For death rates, it was even more striking. So the US had the highest death rates, triple what we had in Canada. And if we had a similar course to the US, we would have had 70,000 more Canadians die in the first two years. That, that means that probably most of us would personally know uh, either a family member, let's say a grandparent, or someone who's immunocompromised who would have died in the first couple of years who's alive today because our course was different than the U.S. 
you mentioned this in uh, in the report. You called the vaccine rollouts here magic in some ways, how well Canadians responded. And that was despite a patchwork across the country, different health authorities, obviously health is a provincial jurisdiction. Now, what do you what did you see as the key to success there? Yeah, our, our vaccine rollout for dose one and dose two really was quite magical. And the other thing to remember, not only were we a patchwork, we received our vaccines later than many other countries. So if you remember before the vaccines arrived, tremendous amount of anxiety about the fact that other countries were actively rolling out vaccines. We had still yet to really get ours. And once we received them, we had really only enough doses to roll out probably that first dose to many people not to give that second dose. So a lot of anxiety. But once the vaccines arrived, the Canadian public really did their part. They lined up. There was big events to get people vaccinated. And we quickly raced ahead of many other countries. And by the end of two years, just to give context again, Compared to the United States, which was in the mid-60s for second-dose vaccines, we were above 80%. So just an enormous difference. And I imagine what the results of this, of course, uh, whether it be a pressure on the healthcare system, which was already under strain, uh, that there, there were real benefits to just how well Canada performed for the entire system, which meant those who were, got sick had places to go to because fewer people were getting sick. Yeah, so the, the vaccines worked probably together with, with the one other incredibly important strategy in Canada, which was fairly strict and sustained public health measures. So compared to the other countries in the G10, we had among the highest rates of, of business closures, school closures, restrictions on public gatherings, things that made it very hard for uh, people, I have to say, a very difficult time for the Canadian public, but reduced the transmission of the virus. And so vaccine rates being very high plus aggressive public health measures together probably are what are most responsible for reducing the rate of infection. Now, that said, Canada has one of the lowest hospital capacities of any country in the G10. So relative to our population, a very low number of hospital beds. And so even with those restrictions, we had very difficult waves relative to our capacity and then additional extraordinary measures were taken. So for example, in Ontario, we had more than 4,000 patients transferred between hospitals, something that's never happened in Canadian history, in, our, in order to balance the load of admissions. And that was also crucially important. One could only imagine what would have happened if, uh, if it had been worse, if it had been like, say, France, if the infection rates France, had been that high. Yeah, France or Italy or New York State, which saw really near collapse of their hospital sector. Uh, we did not have that here. And to that, I think, the, to the great credit of, again, the public who got vaccinated and who were able to tolerate those restrictions and the healthcare system that really rallied and the public health officials that really rallied at the peaks of each of those crises. One of the things I found interesting in your report was you talked to about the persistence of the measures that were put into place that many countries would sort of put in strict measures, then ease them and have to deal with the consequences of that, that somehow it was the it was the ability of health authorities across the country to maintain these restrictions that probably did a great deal of good. Yeah, so I think the question going forward is actually what the strategy was. What we observed was very high degree of public health measures implemented. Again, these closures, the restrictions, and a persistence, whereas many countries uh, rocked back and forth between very aggressive clampdowns and then aggressive loosening of those clampdowns. Canada just held at that very high persistent rate. And I think the question going forward now is what among those measures was the most necessary, especially given the level of fatigue and frustration in the public? 
I'm sure because at this point in time, certainly there are concerns, I would imagine, going forward, uh, you know, COVID-19 has not left us, uh, that there is a certain amount of fatigue within the population to be able to do something like that again, for instance. Yeah, there's real signs that the incredible solidarity and the rallying of the public has waned significantly. So, um, you know, starting with vaccination, uh, we were at the very top of the G10 for dose one and dose two, but we are solidly middle of the pack now for dose three. And it's not because it's not available. It's because the engagement and the messaging around it is just not there. And we need to figure out how to get the public re-engaged to get that magic we had in the initial rollout. Same thing for the public health measures. For example, we had uh, among the highest rates of school closures in the G10. We know a lot more about the virus now than we did two years ago. We know that airborne transmission is critical. We know that there's important things you can do to reduce airborne transition through air filtration, ventilation, the use of masks during periods of high transmission. So can we keep these critical parts of society open, our businesses, our schools, keep our economy rolling, but still protect the public? I think it can be done, but it requires an aggressive strategy that's very targeted. And certainly I imagine learning from each other as well from different provinces to see which restrictions really worked, which ones were over the top or not necessary, uh, that there's a lot of learning to be done uh, now. Absolutely. Uh, we're, we're doing the same analysis to look across Canada to see the provincial variation, but I think the outlines of the strategy are starting to become very clear. So uh, make sure that you're as vaccinated as possible. Uh, use those really targeted measures to reduce viral transmission. So uh, again, ensuring that air quality is as, as good as it can be in buildings. And remember, this is not just about COVID. It reduces influenza. It reduces other viral infections. There's studies to show that cognitive performance is improved if air quality is better. So there's a lot of benefits from improving air quality. And then we probably, as a culture, need to accept that masks have an important and targeted role, especially when there's rises in viral transmission. I'm speaking with Dr. Fahad Razak. He's scientific director of the Ontario COVID-19 Science Advisory Table and an internist and epidemiologist at St. Mike's Hospital in Toronto. We're talking about a study that he's just uh, co-authored that found Canada did very well during the uh, during the early years of the COVID pandemic in terms of both uh, meeting and getting vaccinated, obeying public health measures, essentially protecting ourselves from this from this virus. When we come back, I know you looked at the economic impact of, as well in this study, and we'll get to that after this. My guest this half hour is Dr. Fahad Razak. He's the scientific director of the Ontario COVID-19 Science Advisory Table and an internist and epidemiologist at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto. We're looking at a study that he's co-authored that looked at uh, 11 different countries, very comparable to Canada in many ways, and just how well we did uh, when it came to keeping COVID at bay to a certain extent. mainly due to our ability or our our our, um, our need or our, our being getting vaccinated, but also following public health measures, the persistence of those public health measures uh, that managed to uh, to quell uh, COVID-19, unlike some other places that had higher uh, mortality rates, higher rates of infection. You looked at the financial impact as well, and I gather on that front, Canada did pay a high price for, for all the measures that were put into place. We did. And, uh, you know, I think this, again, is a story of complexity. And so, look, we are experiencing some very difficult times right now. So there is an absolutely blistering inflation rate in Canada. Uh, We're feeling it day to day when you go to the grocery store, when you fill up your car. Uh, What's important to realize is that the inflation phenomena, the, the effects we're feeling are really global. And if you compare us to the G10, we are solidly now middle of the pack for inflation rate. For things like unemployment, which we did have a spike during the early phases of the pandemic, we're now back down to the inflation rates actually pre-pandemic times. And again, very comparable to the rest of the G10. 
The one area where we did clearly worse was around GDP. We experienced the worst GDP contraction of the of the G10, and that, along with the amount of debt spending we had during the pandemic, is important to recognize. So I would say overall, economically middle of the pack, but the one area of probably important concern is our GDP contraction. So if you add it all up, um, it would seem that Canada's performance, although at the time it felt like we were just, I mean, a lot for public health officials, even them were kind of wandering in the dark because it was all so uh, new, uh, that overall the performance was good and there are lessons to be learned. Yeah, that's a good summary. I think there's a lot to be learned. And there's a story that I think has to be messaged and told to the Canadian public, which is, in some ways, look at what you achieve. So through vaccination, through following these measures, we're starting to see these enormous differences between countries. And again, coming down to that 70,000 deaths number, I, that is really unprecedented what was achieved. But we are not through this. And the question really now going forward is, can we do this in a smarter way, achieve all of that benefit that we saw, but yet uh, reduce the, uh, the disturbances uh, that we experience in our day-to-day lives? For those who, uh, you know, for the for public health officials out there, for politicians, I imagine the messaging of this has become a challenge and that sharing the good news would be a good thing and reminding people that lessons are being learned here, that we won't have to do everything the same way twice if some of it didn't make sense. That's right. You know, a, a great example of, of the lessons learned are, for example, the travel restrictions. We know now that the virus transmits and spreads much faster than we can detect that the variants spread faster than we can detect. Border closures really don't make a lot of sense at this point. They don't buy you a lot of value. They can be very uh, restrictive for businesses, for people who have family abroad. They don't seem to benefit you that much. But on the other hand, investments in air quality, the masking, getting the best vaccines out to people quickly seem to have enormous payoffs. So it's about retrenching around the areas that work the most and about avoiding the disruptions as much as possible for people acknowledging that this may be years still to go. We really don't know. There's no sign that these waves of variants is slowing down right now. Of course, all of us hope it, for it to be over, but we really try and protect our population until it is. Before I let you go, I want to ask you, because the, of course the U.S. has now approved vaccines for children under five or five and under, uh, or under five rather. Um, and they've called that the final frontier of vaccinations in the States. Of course, as you pointed out already, vaccination uptake in the States was significantly lower than here. Uh, but is, is that the right move for this country? And how far are we away from, from seeing that happen, do you think? We're probably pretty close to having our under five vaccines approved, and it's going to be an important part of our strategy, but it's really not everything. So along with our under five vaccines, we have to prioritize getting third doses into many adults where there still has not been uptake. So uh, like I said, there's a real opportunity right now to improve the rate of vaccination among adults. Third doses, there's going to be a new generation of vaccines probably available in the fall. We're using our original vaccines from uh, that were developed against the version of the virus that came out of Wuhan in 2020. So vaccination is a portfolio approach. There's going to be vaccines approved for the first time for the under fives. There's still a lot of opportunity to vaccinate five to 11 year olds with their second dose. And for most adults, there's still an opportunity for that third dose. And then in the fall, there'll be this new generation of vaccine. And I suppose the key here will be for public health officials to try again to convince Canadians that these are necessary fiendishly difficult messaging. I I don't envy public health officials for what they're facing. We think that this good news story, and again, it's a relative good news story we suffered, but the fact that Canada did better than these other countries in very significant ways has to be part of the story. 
because when you're asked to make significant sacrifices, I think it's important to recognize what they have achieved already. So in a nutshell, I, I guess Canadians should be should be proud of, of, of how they how they made it through. I mean, part of it was a, there was a bit of luck in there, I know, and a bit of uh, a bit of good fortune in, in, in our vaccine pickup, because I think because it was restricted, uh, it made people a lot more eager to get it in some strange way. Um, but a good news story. So thank you so much for, for sharing your report with us tonight, Dr. Razak. I appreciate it. Uh, thanks, Ben. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.